You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. On today's episode, I'll be talking about my recent trip out to North Dakota for what ended up being a pretty short hunt overall. I'll talk about kind of the thought process going into it, some of the strategy, and ultimately how that hunt played out just from a storytelling aspect. Before we get started, I have a quick message about the Spartan Forge app, which you can get a 20% discount on by using the code DIY. The app allows you to do all of your standard mapping, navigation in the field, and waypoint management. You can currently choose from three different satellite views, topo, and in many areas aerial imagery at multiple time points throughout history, view public and private lands, color code your permission status on those private lands, view all of your forecasted and historical weather info, add journaling entries for your hunts that automatically tag the weather conditions and wind for that time period and view a deer movement prediction powered by machine learning based on collared deer studies across the country. I also have a walkthrough video posted on my YouTube channel that you can use to physically see the app in more detail. Also, if you're listening to this episode before December 5th, there is a hunt giveaway down in Alabama coming up on January 18th through the 23rd. I'll be down there along with some of the other Spartan Forge crew. I believe it'll be Bill, who's of course the CEO, Johnny Stewart, who I've had on the podcast before, uh, Seek One guys and Jason Red from Timber Ninja, and there's going to be some prizes uh, from some of the other sponsors for giveaway uh, type stuff. And in addition, there's also a GoFundMe to help raise money for some of the veterans organizations that they're involved with. So more details can be found on the Spartan Forge Instagram, which is Spartan Forge. And uh, yeah, you have until December 5th. That's when they go ahead and draw the winners for that hunt. All right, so let's dive into the hunt. I think I had mentioned on my last podcast that I was planning to go back out and try and fill my uh, North Dakota tag again after I had filled my Wisconsin tag. And I've always wanted to go back out there this time of year. I think I mentioned that as well. And really just meaning the rut, like early November, mid-November, late November, like whatever time, even late October. And in the last couple of years, it's just never really been in the cards. And so this was really a good opportunity uh, to be able to go out and try something new. And I didn't really know what I'd be getting myself into. I knew that the rifle season would have been going on for a couple of weeks, but it was also getting closer to tapering off. And what's interesting out there is that all of the rifle tags are given off of a lottery system, 
which in a lot of Midwest states, of course, you could just assume you should be able to go over the counter and buy your gun tag and go hunt with your you know, family tradition or deer camp or whatever. Well, that's not necessarily the case out there. And I haven't done the stats to see if there's any zones where you can't get tags. I thought I remember talking to one guy who said he hadn't been able to draw a rifle tag in like, you know, two or three years as a resident. I'm not sure what zone that was in, but point being, it's a little bit different out there. And of course, with much of that landscape being flat and wide open, uh, some of the hunting habits, I think, are generally different. So I knew kind of going into it that a lot of the crops would be gone, meaning, and, and that combined with the gun pressure probably meant that deer would be more consolidated into timbered areas or areas with cover much more so than they would be in early September if you'd be like velvet hunting for instance and so with that in mind I had a couple areas that I'd scouted in the past and have even tried hunting early season a little bit and those are going to be the first places I was planning on checking out uh, there was pretty much just flat timber had some areas with with dense pockets of cover and of course some agriculture around which you can say about just about every place out in North Dakota it seems like so I got out there and it was maybe early afternoon to where I could probably go and find a place to set up. And based on prior scouting, I knew that that was a strong possibility, but I didn't want to necessarily hold myself to that. I knew that, uh, I wanted to try and get a good feel for what the most recent sign was. And with snow on the ground, they gave me a really good opportunity to see what that most recent sign was. And so I walked into that first spot, you know, one, maybe one thirty in the afternoon. And not too far off the road, I started seeing deer tracks and kept walking in, walking in and eventually got to some of the areas that I had scouted and thought would be good based on my perception of how the land laid in early season when I last walked it. And certainly the stuff that I thought would be good had deer sign, it had tracks, trails, etc. but there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of rut sign. I found one area in the snow where it looked like it had been scraped open and the snow had been kicked away under a licking branch, which I wouldn't expect to see a lot of that just because of the fact that it's later in November by this point. And a lot of that scraping activity really kind of peaks in, you know, maybe three weeks earlier in that late October time frame. So it was interesting to see that, but I also really didn't see a lot of rubs. And in certain areas in that state, I generally haven't seen a lot of deer rubs. And I don't know if that's because there's, there's also, you know, elk and and maybe that plays a role or if it has to do more with densities of, of mature deer or immature deer. But regardless, I didn't see in this first area all of the stuff that I would have hoped to see just based on my perception earlier in the year. And so I had a decision to make. I could say, you know what, I'll, I'll just go climb a tree in this the spot that looks the best. It's a good pinch point and sit it off for the rest of the evening and then go back and maybe hit some other place the next day. Uh, but I decided instead to just kind of mark it off and treat it as extra scouting. And I kind of looped around the bedding area and tried to see as much sign as I could just for future learning. And by doing that, I had gotten my scent into a lot of that bedding area, but at that point I didn't really plan on, on spending much more time in it. And so I did learn a little bit. I marked a couple of waypoints, but then I started to head back out and it was late afternoon, not a whole lot of shooting light left by the time I got back to the truck. So I just drove around a little bit to try and assess the area and certainly there was a lot of hunting pressure overall, but it seemed like less hunting pressure in the, in the cover and just driving around at that, you know, dusk time frame, I didn't see much for deer. I didn't see a lot of tracks driving the road. You know, I hear about a lot of times, especially guys out in the Northeast, you know, might slowly drive a logging road with, uh, 
with fresh snow on it and then, you know, cut a track and follow it. But it seemed like in large part, these deer were, were avoiding the road areas and maybe by the end of the year that changes. Uh, but it certainly seemed like just driving around wasn't going to tell you a whole lot. A lot of the fields just look like barren wastelands covered in snow with no perceivable deer sign that you could see. Although there were a few, uh, I particularly remember one field that had some corn stubble in it that had four does out in it, but largely that was not the case. We had the same wind direction the next day. I think it was a westerly wind and we were going to have the same west wind for the next several days. And the Spartan Forge prediction showed full range for the next several days. And so I basically knew that I had the opportunity to basically pick a spot and once it looked good, I could sit there for three days in a row, you know, all in, in one good uh, pinch point type area and hope for some type of rut activity, some type of late cruising, some deer that's getting off of one doe and making his trip to find another last receptive doe type of a deal. I wasn't planning on it being a really super mobile trip just because I don't think it really needed to be. So I was really looking for that best sign and I wasn't going to set up until I saw it. So that next morning I woke up before sunrise and just kind of sat there looking at the maps a little bit more. I had ideas of where I wanted to hunt next, but was just kind of browsing around to see if there's anything else that made more sense given the wind direction and what I had seen the, the day prior. And eventually I made a decision on where I wanted to go. It was another, you know, kind of a, a decent sized woodlot area that had pockets of denser cover in it. And it would have played out really well for that westerly wind where I had seen does bedded in the past scouting that particular piece of land and where the, they, I would imagine they would still be bedded just based on the density of the cover in some of those areas. The west wind would work well and you'd have good uh, downwind side of the bedding cruising. Not much for pinch points probably, but again, I was going to go in there and see what it looked like. And I got into this area and pretty quickly I could tell there was more deer sign than the place I had walked the day prior. And so I continued to walk in with this area in mind, this, you know, doe bedding place that I had scouted in the past. Well, while I was on my way there, maybe, you know, 400 yards shy of where I eventually wanted to get to, I found this little pocket of bur oaks. And this was one of those areas where it was a little bit thicker overall, younger trees, but it kind of opened up a little bit and you had these big mature bur oaks. Obviously the, it, by this time of the year, there wasn't much um, in terms of food resource. And I know that's not the case in many parts of the country where there might still be white oak acorns, but in this case, there was no evidence that these were being used as feed trees, uh, but it did seem like they were being used as kind of a hub for travel. And there was a number of trails that uh, kind of meandered through this area and some of those, you know, sideways hanging branches off of those mature bur oaks had scrapes under them. Uh, not like fresh today, like pawed out, but you know, they almost, it was strange. It almost kind of looked like beds <laughs> because instead of pawing out the snow, it just seemed like deer were coming up and using licking branches, but in doing so they were, you know, obviously putting their hooves in that area underneath the licking branch. And so it was less scraping activity more just kind of pounding that area in a circle. So it kind of looked like half scrape, half, um, bed, but it was right underneath the licking branch. And there was like a decent one there. And I'm thinking, okay, this is good, good news. And I walked another 15 yards and I found another one on another one of those branches. I'm like, okay, well maybe I should just set up here. Uh, maybe that other place I was planning on getting to is just as good. Maybe it's even better, but I have today. And then if today doesn't work out, I got tomorrow. And just knowing that it was rut movement that I was looking for, it's not like I needed to be, I felt like really tight to buck bedding or something like that. There's a good chance that these deer could come by midday. And so I decided then 
I had a good wind direction to be able to hunt that spot. I had just gotten my boot sent all throughout this area, so that was not ideal. But I also know that, especially with snow, for whatever reason, I've had experiences in the past where deer will walk in my tracks, and I've seen it happen in snow, and I'm sure they can probably smell me, and I'm sure they're probably alert, but I was willing to just risk. Maybe I'll I'll get an opportunity to deer before it busts or something along those lines. Uh, I didn't feel like me walking through that area was necessarily a, a deal breaker, especially if the deer was coming in, you know, three, four, five hours after I had got set up because they might perceive that scent time differential as being like, okay, he was here a while ago, but not now. My wind scent was safe. Like there's no way that could have smelled me once I was in the tree that I had picked, which was one of those big bur oaks that had sideways limbs going everywhere. And it was really kind of a goofy scenario to try and get set up in there. I ended up going like maybe 10 feet off the ground with my platform. I had brought the Predator XL instead of the standard size Predator, which I usually use just because I knew I was going to be using bigger boots for this hunt. And I ended up getting that situated to where I had like a big limb on my right side, like right by my thigh, and then another one on my left side. So I was kind of wedged between these two big limbs. And then I was standing on the platform in between the two limbs. So I felt like I had a pretty decent amount of cover. Behind me, I was somewhat skylit, but the tree that I was on offered a lot of cover just by itself. And I set up my bow to where it also had a big limb kind of sticking out. And I had this little pocket where I could draw my bow back and shoot to most of those uh, scrapes in the, the trail that I had seen going between the two and probably have like a 15 yard shot. There was also one of those trails that went right directly under my tree, but it looked like it had only been used by one, maybe two deer. So I was hoping that that wasn't a trail that was going to get used. I don't remember the exact timing, but I imagine it was probably around 10 a.m. or so that I had gotten to that tree and picked it out. And it took me probably 30 minutes, a good 30 minutes, maybe more to get set up just because that tree was so goofy. And I had so many extra clothes that I was bringing because it, it was only in the teens when I got there and 10, 15 mile an hour winds every day. So it was chilly and I wanted to make sure that I was prepared to sit all day, every day, three days in a row if need be. Not 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes after I had gotten finally finished setting up, two does came in and they worked around on those scrapes for a little bit. One of them hit the licking branch and just generally they, they seemed to be rubbing their noses in a lot of the brush uh, that was low lying in this area. And I think some of that was them sensing that I had walked through there. They didn't seem like they were smelling the ground as much, but they were definitely smelling some of the brush that I had you know, walked through, uh, as I was getting into that area. And usually I do as a good a job as possible to not try and touch things as I'm walking through an area. I just try and, you know, basically have my boots be the only scent that's left. But in this case, there wasn't really that option just because the, some of the underbrush was thick enough to where I was leaving a pretty good scent deposit as I was going through the trail on my access. So that was not ideal, but it seemed like the deer were cautiously nervous. Like they, they could tell that something was awry, but it didn't really seem to affect what they were ultimately going to do too much. Like they kept going the same direction that they had planned on going. They just did it slower and more cautiously. And at some point they turned around, came back through. And one of them was like 12 yards away and looked up at me in the tree. And I'm wearing blaze orange, of course, because it's still, d despite the fact that I have a bow, it's still rifle season. So I have to wear blaze orange. And so she's 12 yards away. I'm 10 feet up in the tree wearing an orange hat and vest. And she looked up for maybe two, three seconds and then put her head back down and kept on going. 
Now, the other one did the same thing. She got to that spot, looked up at me, and she was a little bit more nervous. And so she ended up looking for maybe five, ten seconds, and then she kind of bound, took a couple bounds off and then slowed up when she caught up with the other deer. And then I could see him through the trees working another licking branch from a scrape that was just a little bit down the, the trail, <clears throat> which I had also looked at. So I had my boots on basically along that whole trail, and they, they continued to work it. So by the point those deer left, I'm still at the point where I haven't even been in the tree long enough where I really feel like I'm starting to cool down and, you know, zip everything back up. So just to give you some idea of how fast all of this is happening, this is what, like 10, 30, 11? No, it must be, must be close to 11. Because around 11, 20 or so, again, I'm just making these numbers up, but they're pretty close. I heard a grunt, like a faint grunt, but I was like pretty sure it's quiet enough. There's nothing else that could have been that didn't sound like a bird or, or anything else that could have made a noise that could be perceived as a grunt. I suppose it could have been another hunter. However, I did not see any other hunter sign. Well, I take that back. I did see hunter sign when I was walking in, but it didn't go back as far as I was. So it could have been another hunter, but I figured it's probably a buck, but it sounded like it was a long ways off. Regardless, I was just kind of, you know, staying on alert. And shortly thereafter, I saw movement coming from the exact same directions that those does had just left. And he was kind of screened behind some timber and branches, but I could see antlers, so I could tell it was a buck. And I made the decision pretty quickly. I was going to go ahead and take a shot if I got the opportunity. And I wasn't on this hunt going into it. I wasn't planning on being super picky. Um, you know, this is again, the first time I had done this hunt. And I think I've mentioned this in the past, but I think the first time you do an out of state hunt with, you know, a certain state or a certain time of year, like the first time you do any set of circumstances, I don't tend to try and put really high expectations on myself because it's mostly a learning experience uh, that hopefully I learn enough to be successful the second time I do that set of circumstances. And if you're able to capitalize on it, then that's icing on the cake. And so that's the mentality I went into this hunt with. So when that deer started coming in, I made the decision pretty quickly. I was going to try and shoot him. So I got the main camera on him and he was probably within 30 yards by the time I first saw him. He didn't make a lot of noise in the snow coming in. And I didn't really turn the 360 camera on, but I had that main camera on right on that main shooting lane he was going to walk into. And he, just like the does, started sniffing some of that brush at, uh, at ground level. And he started working his way in, pausing, moving a couple of yards, pausing, moving a couple of yards. And once it seemed like he was finally going to, walk into that shooting lane. I drew back. He didn't see me move, but as he started walking in that shooting lane, he was kind of hugging the brush line. And he started actually taking that trail that went right past my tree. And that trail for him was kind of going uphill. So he's now within 15 yards walking slightly uphill and I'm in a tree with blaze orange on like 10 feet up. So pretty much right in his line of sight. And he looked up at me. He saw me pretty obviously. But there was a sapling covering his vitals uh, from that frontal angle. But then to try and get a better look at me, he shifted his whole, you know, neck basically to the side and that exposed everything. And I had done a lot more research on frontal shots after I shot that one a couple of years ago. And it also received a lot of feedback through messages or comments about people who had their own opinions on that shot angle through, you know, personal experiences, which I'm always welcome to hearing. And the common consensus seemed to be that it was either a love it or hate it type of thing. There are guys who are absolutely hundred percent on board and they think it's a incredibly lethal shot and they'll take it every chance that they get. And then there's other guys who 
just think it's an unethical shot decision <clears throat> and that could be based off personal experience or it could just be basically repeating what they've heard growing up uh, through other people who are mentor figures to them. But what it seemed like a common denominator is in what made something a, a high percentage versus a low percentage shot from that angle had a lot to do with shot distance and angle up and down, meaning if the deer was, let's say, 30 yards and somebody attempted to take a frontal shot, well, then the deer had a very high likelihood of being able to alter the shot placement. And then you're no longer hitting that nice little pocket in the front of the chest where you have wide open access and no bones covering up the vital organs. And I was even talking to to somebody the other day about like, oh, weren't you you know afraid of going through the sternum? The sternum doesn't go up that high. You're just looking at the front of the rib cage. Um, so your your biggest risk there is if you hit the side of the rib cage at that angle and your broadhead were to deflect and go outside the rib cage, that's probably the biggest risk with that shot angle. So if you're shooting close enough, you have a pretty big target to actually aim for. And if you're shooting close enough where the deer's not going to be able to react super quickly, which is often the case if their head is up and they're, you know, sub 20, sub 15 yards and you're on the ground, that set of circumstances means you still have a pretty good probability. I mean, you think about the guys who take that shot, elk hunting too, much bigger animal, a uh, much bigger shot window, and the elk generally aren't moving as much, at least from what I've seen on videos. I don't have any personal experience with it. With white tails, obviously they're smaller, so that that area of the, the chest that you're shooting for is smaller. So it just makes sense to try and keep those shots really close. And then the other thing I touched on was just the up and down angle. If you had guys who had tried to take a frontal shot out of a tree stand, there was a much higher likelihood that something was going to go wrong. And if you look at a deer anatomy or you download the deer simulation app, like the one that Shane Simpson uses on his tracking videos, and you just play around with some of those shot angles and you try and take a frontal angle that's steeply downward at a deer, it's like you better hope you hit the harder one of those big blood vessels because otherwise you're just going to pass through the bottom of the chest between both legs and there's a much higher risk that you don't hit something immediately vital. Now, if you're either on the ground or very low to the ground, or if you have a scenario where, you know, the deer's facing uphill or the terrain somehow makes it to where it's the equivalent of like a ground level shot with some guys setups, they'll pass through the full length of the deer. So, and I've heard that from a number of guys where they had the arrows either, you know, poking out the backside or they had a full pass through or, you know, buried to the fletching, which even if it's buried to the fletching, that's, that's getting through all the vitals that you would need to get through. So all the things that were lining up, all the you know research I had done into that, plus my own limited personal experience and the angle that this deer was now giving me, which was very close to a, a ground angle up and down, but also right around 14 yards. I think I, I'd say 12 yards was my guess in the video. I counted the frames in the video. He's probably 14. So I felt highly comfortable with taking that shot and I placed the pin so that it was kind of over the top of the heart just underneath the, where I thought the spine would be kind of in the 3d view and release the arrow. The deer immediately did that little snow plow. Uh, once they do that, you know, it's, it's typically going to be over pretty quickly uh, from what I've seen. And I could see blood coming out almost immediately. Couldn't see the arrow once it made impact, but the deer kind of slowly made it about 50, 60 yards and just tipped over. So of course that was exciting. And the, the hunt was so short relative to the amount of time I spent either driving or walking around and looking for sign. So it was really nice that it was able to, to work out that quickly as opposed to me sitting in that spot for you know a couple of days hoping for some activity to come through. And really, I think the key thing there was that I saw the sign and I just decided to set up on it rather than sticking to that idea 
that I had in my head of the spot that I wanted to get to and walking past that sign, which is something I might have done, you know, five, ten years ago. And maybe that other spot would have also been really good. It's tough to say because I wasn't there at the same time. I did do some walking around after I recovered the deer. And again, I was just trying to use the snow to build a library for future years reference. Uh, so I, I know that area fairly well now, at least as well as one could with the amount of time I spent out there. And so I think if there's a, a takeaway, that's probably it. You know, spend a lot of time scouting, looking for the best place, looking for an area that you would feel comfortable sitting in the next three days in if you had to. You know, if somebody came to you and said, you're not going to be able to hunt mobily, you're going to have to pick a spot and we'll hold you to it for the next couple of days. That might make you a little bit more willing, and at least it made me a little bit more willing with that mindset to know to set up only when I had found sign that I deemed was was pretty good for what I felt like that time of year, what I was looking for. Now, as a follow-up to the shot, I was not able to find the arrow, uh, but there was a really good blood trail that whole 50, 60 yards or so, whatever he went. And I ended up cording the deer out to get the meat out of the woods. And when I did so and you know reached into the rib cage to, to get the heart and took the, the rib meat out, the arrow was actually penetrated far enough to where the veins in the lighted knock were kind of entangled in the lungs. And the broadhead ended up going through the right ham and was actually poking against the hide on the back of the ham. So I didn't measure it with a tape measure. I'm estimating probably about 36 inches of total penetration just based on my arrow length, plus the fact that it was, you know, six, seven inches past where it went in. So really good penetration there. And I was shooting a high pounded setup, you know, about 75 pounds, 29 and three quarter inch draw. So I do have a lot of uh, energy and momentum behind that arrow, uh, but I was shooting around 420 grains or 420, 425, somewhere right around there. And that was with a, a Sever 1.5 broadhead. It's the first year I've shot with that broadhead. I've shot uh, a coyote with it before and had taken it down to Saddlepalooza and, and shot a little pig with it. And it, they'd always looked really good upon recovery, you know, pulling them from the dirt. And this deer was no different. In fact, and this was actually really surprising to me, I took this arrow out of the deer, you know, pulled it out of the ham and took it home and got it all washed up. The blades look fine and the blades still pivot just fine. The tip and the ferrule, everything still spins beautifully. But here was the, the thing that really got me was I went and just did a, a hair shaving test and the blade was still able to shave hairs, not as easily as before I shot the deer, but the fact that it was still able to shave after I had passed through that much animal was really impressive. Now that wasn't just out of the box. That was, I took some of the blades, disassembled the head and ran them over a, a bench grinder setup with the paper wheels and that white uh, buffing compound. And so I got it to where, I mean, they were sharp, like, e like easily face shaving sharp uh, prior to hunting with them. And then I reassembled the broadheads. So the two deer I shot this year, one was with a Sever 2, the other one was a Sever 1.5, uh, and I still have fixed blades in my, my quiver, and I don't think that'll change. I think I'll just continue to have a mixed bag, and I know where each of them shoot. Obviously, the mechanical is more forgiving to errors in form or wind or a little bit longer shots, uh, whereas the fixed blade might be generally a little bit more forgiving in various scenarios where you might encounter weird angles. Is kind of how I usually look at it. And all things considered, the fixed blade is usually going to penetrate better. However, I also have a, a pretty high pounder setup, like I mentioned. So even with the mechanicals, I don't have a, a massive fear for penetration, unless I was to just totally broadside the shoulder blade when the deer's rolling away with like a 2.0, then I wouldn't expect that to go through. And the only downside that I have with the 
well, I guess a couple downsides I've seen with those heads. One is that they have the little screw to lock them into practice mode, but the broadhead itself, the blades stick out just a little bit beyond the ferrule in practice mode when you put pressure against the wings. And so I've actually measured it. They do dull when you shoot it into the targets with practice mode engaged. Not the whole blade, but like the last quarter inch or so of the blade, they do start to dull up a little bit, which is kind of disappointing. And that was part of the reason, too, why I sharpened all the blades prior to hunting with them. Uh, but then the that 1.5 is just not, for a mechanical, it's not a lot of cut. And in fact, many fixed blades have more cut. My iron wheel wides have more cut than that several 1.5 and you add up the bleeder. Same thing with the, the day six heads that I have. Same thing with a lot of the, you know, three or four blade heads that I have. It's bigger than like a two blade Magnus or like a two blade single bevel style of head. Um, that's maybe an inch and an eighth. So the, the trade-off you're playing there is, yeah, that head might be comparable to a lot of fixed blades in terms of durability, penetration, etc. But if you hit a deer far back, you're going to have some of the same downsides where it's just not a lot of cut compared to like a, either a two inch head or like a, you know, a big three blade head or something of that nature. So it's all a big world of trade-offs. There's no, never a perfect broadhead. So I usually just try and pick whichever one makes the most sense for the scenario that I'm hunting in the specific setup. And that's the arrow that I'm knocking. Uh, but I've with each of those heads, taken them out to the range and kind of verified all the, the point of impact and everything else, knock tuning and all that good stuff. So there's usually a high bit of confidence that I'm just making the selection based off shot distance, angle, wind, etc. So anyways, I hope that uh, story was entertaining, maybe even a little bit helpful for the rest of the year. I will primarily be focused on scouting and, and also probably get a chance to do some early ice fishing this year, which I didn't get a chance to do much of last year. So that'll be fun. There are still some muzzleloader tags open that I haven't bought yet. So I plan on buying some of those late tags that'll give me at least an extra opportunity to be out in the woods with a weapon. And my plan is to just primarily treat those seasons as learn new areas that I haven't spent a lot of time in the past. And if I happen to, to get a good opportunity, I'll certainly try to capitalize on it, but that's not gonna be, I guess, the main goal would be more shifted towards the, the learning aspect of the new land. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Instagram and Facebook. Leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman on YouTube and hit the bell icon to be notified of new videos. You can also follow DIY underscore Sportsman on Instagram. And with that, thanks for listening.